Ezekiel 37.3 reads, And he, God, said to me, Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Hello, and welcome back to Think This Way, the podcast of Faith Bible Church. I am Pastor Elder Bryce. Today, I have with me both a large stack of books, and if you know our elders, you know which one that means is here. <laughs> it's Brother Dan. Dan, thanks Guilty for being here. Guilty as charged. <laughs> and buy him a large set of books on revival. So if that's something that interests you, number one, listen to this podcast, because that is what we're talking about, the Holy Spirit and revival. And then number two, go talk to Dan, who's been reading all these excellent books and has them available. I see here Revival and Revivalism by Murray which is a great one, and Revival by Lloyd-Jones, who I'll actually be... I don't know if I'm quoting from this book, but from one of his sermons later in this podcast. Well, in several weeks on this podcast, we're going to be talking about something called cessationism. It is not a disorder of the body. <laughs> if you're not familiar with that term, we're going to talk about what cessationism is, uh, and it's set against continuationism. At Faith Bible Church, we are cessationists, it simply means that there are certain sign gifts that were active in the early church that we believe are not normal in the church today, uh, like gifts of miracles and healings, and then revelatory gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues and words of knowledge, maybe of wisdom. We're going to talk about that, um, but I wanted to start by talking about revival because I don't want anyone ever to have the impression that at Faith Bible Church, to be cessationist means that we don't believe the Holy Spirit does anything today. That is not what we believe. We believe he does, like, everything today. Amen. Uh, I remember I've got a good friend, a coffee shop friend. I've got several coffee shop friends. And uh, dear, dear brother, and more in continuationist circles himself. And he, uh, he told me, he was talking with someone who knew both of us. And that person had shared that I was cessationist, and we hadn't talked about that before. And this brother later came up to me to apologize because when he heard that, he was just disturbed because he'd only really known one cessationist before, and it was a former pastor who, from his description, the former pastor, and there are these, was the sort of cessationist where, you know, the Holy Spirit's doing nothing, not going to heal anybody, not going to do anything, like nothing. So he thought I was that, and he was very bothered. Thankfully, though, even before he came to me, he talked to somebody, and they said, no, that's, that's not what Bryce is. <laughs> that's not what our church is. So um, we just want to make clear off the bat, in case someone thinks, oh, cessationists, that means you don't believe even in the Holy Spirit, or you don't believe he's active. We believe he's so, so active. It's just one small area that we don't believe he's active in. But in everything else, he is. And so before we get into those discussions with uh, Andrew Walden, who's going to join for that in the following weeks, I thought we would start by talking about one area where the Holy Spirit is so active and where we'd love to see him working again today. And that is in the area of what we call revival. Just to get us started, no matter what someone thinks about various gifts of the Holy Spirit, Definitely the greatest work of the Holy Spirit continues to this day completely unchanged, and that is convicting sinners of their sin, 
leading them to Christ and working within them to cause them to be born again. And we all, all true, genuine believers, agree with that. Amen. And we are Amen. all excited about that. And if you're a student of history at all, you are aware that throughout church history, there have been periods of time where that work of the Holy Spirit in particular, convicting sinners, bringing them to repentance, changing, saving them, has been intensified. And there have been large numbers of people, the church of God has been awakened and then gone out and large numbers of people in unexpected ways have come to Christ. And we call those periods of time revivals. That's what we're talking about today. And we have our great historian with us, Dan Geelock. So I thought we would just get started here with you, Dan, by just asking what are a few of the great revivals of the past and what were they like? Well, first, I think every great and true revival is characterized first by faithful proclamation of God's word. Second, it is then characterized by a response and mobilization of God's people to enact upon a life of sanctified holiness and of life and of a change in direction. It's primarily not a revival of unbelievers, but primarily a revival of believers, weak believers, those believers that are not fully dedicated to the means of grace understanding how they should walk in God's world. A lover of ancient history found an old Bohemian Psalter with a picture of Wycliffe striking the spark, Huss kindling the coals, and Luther brandishing the flame. It said, in effect, Reformation has come. Revival has occurred. Now, that Psalter was dated 1572. Even then, they realized what God was doing as the word was faithfully preached and the people mobilized. Shortly after that period, Mary, Queen of Scots, also known as Bloody Mary, said of the fiery preacher John Knox, I fear his tongue and pen more than the armies of England. With good cause, because Knox read, believed, and preached God's word, trusted its promises, and mobilized the people of Scotland into what became known as the Scottish Revival. Now, Broader than just what's happening on the European continent, you find the First Great Awakening, 1730 to the 40s, England, and then the colonies, most notably Massachusetts, churches were lax in their requirements for church participation and membership. People in the colonies were very concerned about the spiritual condition of their children and went to prayer, which is, again, I would say the third hallmark or precursor of a true revival. And that focus and dedication on confessing, confession and asking God to ignite the flames and to see his word bear fruit is what really began that. Now, in the 1700s, there was a Carolinian revival. And Bryce, I think you've spoken about this in the past. James McCreary, who was being used of God, had a real heart burning for a revival of interest and flame and passion for the things of God with the people of God. And there were anti-revivalists who, like in the days of Jonathan Edwards, 
were accusing those who were being rekindled to a love and a passion for Christ of being extremists. And so <laughs> they locked this poor preacher out of the church. And it's rough. <laughs> yeah, a little rough. They, they turned over the, the, uh, the pews. They locked him out of the church. And what's interesting is there is one account where as he's proclaiming the word of God next to this locked door, all of a sudden the lock snaps and it breaks. God is certainly at work there. The Second Great Awakening, 1820s to 1850s, throughout America and England, the moral fabric of society is tattered, torn by sin, and misplaced affections. The desire to usher in a second coming by saving society precedes and provides the strong impetus to make certain thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, at that time, you have people like Charles Finney uh, being involved, and he brings all of these innovations. Some of them we would look at today and say, what is he doing? But the fact of the matter is there were a good number of people that did indeed come to a knowledge of the truth and an reawakening of their spiritual concerns. Um, and then there was a time in the late, um, later 19th century, 18, about 1880, uh, and that was accompanied again by a period of time where there was trial and tribulation the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, the vulnerability of humanity, the Civil War ending. There was an opportunity for many to see their need for Christ. And D.L. Moody began a Bible study for street children around that time. And again, while Moody may do some things at that time that we would not do today, God used him mightily, and we saw a great wave as well. And you bring up a great point about revival, which is that it's not necessary for there to be absolute purity of doctrine and absolute purity of practice for a real revival to be taking place. Sometimes revivals get discredited um, because of theological issues. Now, if it's heresy, that's a whole different matter. But like Moody's a good example. We wouldn't do everything the way Moody did things. And we have the benefit of hindsight to see, oh, the consequences of that may be okay. But you can't deny that the Holy Spirit was working, and there were many people who came to Christ under his ministry permanently. Lasting fruit. I would say the same thing. Maybe this is controversial, but, but I would say the same thing about Billy Graham. I would say the same thing whenever we have large numbers of people coming to Christ, even though there are things with Billy Graham that I take issue with, his ecumenicity with uh, Roman Catholicism, for example, but we're, we're not talking really about people here. When we're talking about a revival, we're talking about something the Holy Spirit's doing. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And people are involved, and because people get involved, it gets messed up. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit's work is still there, and we don't want to deny it. I have a quote here from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones was certainly a student of revival. He was a Welsh man, and there was a Welsh revival in the mid-1800s, and then another, 1904-1905, and Lloyd-Jones had a particular interest in revival and did a great job talking about it. From all his readings, he kind of summarizes the experience of revivals with these paragraphs I'm about to read. This was not something he experienced himself, maybe when he was younger to some degree. I'm not, was that correct? Yeah. Dan's shaking his head. Wales. Yeah. yeah. So when he was younger, but this is also just from his reading of revivals. Here's what he says, what a revival would look like. 
Quote, we can define it as a period of unusual blessing and activity in the life of the Christian church. Revival means awakening, stimulating the life, bringing it to the surface again. It happens primarily in the church of God, like you said, Dan, and amongst believing people. And it's only secondly something that affects those that are outside also. The essence of a revival is that the Holy Spirit comes down upon a number of people together, upon a whole church, upon a number of churches, districts, or perhaps a whole country. What the people are conscious of is that it's as if something has suddenly come down upon them. The Spirit of God has descended into their midst. God has come down and is amongst them. A baptism, an outpouring, a visitation. And the effect of that is that they immediately become aware of his presence and of his power in a manner that they have never known before. Now, here's where it gets very detailed in what it has looked like in the past. This, meaning spiritual things, now becomes the one thing that absorbs them. If they meet anyone, they talk about it at once. Everybody's talking about it. It's the main topic of conversation. It's the thing that absorbs all their interest. They desire to be together now and to talk about these things, and so they get together and they hold meetings. They meet every night to talk about these things and to praise God and to sing hymns to His glory. Then they begin to pray, and there they are, hour after hour, night after night, longing to finish work so that they might get together with other people who've experienced this movement of the Spirit of God. And that, of course, in turn, leads them to have a great concern about others who are outside and who do not know these things, end quote. And hence why so many people come to Christ at that time. Dan, when I read something like that, I say, how can we make that happen? Unfortunately, <laughs> that's the very nature of revival is that you can't. You can't make it happen. Well, you, we're not going to schedule a revival? <sighs> we can put revival meeting 6.30 Wednesday out here on a sign, but it... You can't, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. However, that being said, Dan, as a final question here, is this something that we should be praying for? Is this something we should be expecting? And if so, is there anything we can do at least to prepare ourselves for revival? Well, I, I would couple two things. Number one, um, focusing again on the first characteristic of revival, and that is centering upon the Word of God itself and the faithful proclamation of God's Word to everyone and encouraging the saints and equipping the saints to do the same with their loved ones for which they have concern. The other item that I mentioned was that of prayer. And we have a biblical basis upon which to pray for revival. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And that fear and that recognition of God's wrath is one of the precursors. As I mentioned earlier, one of the great revival's precursors was a fear and concern for the health, the spiritual welfare of children who were showing no fervor, no interest. And today there are even secular, non-Christian philosophers and observers of our culture who are saying that there is a wave coming, that there is going to be a return to morality, that some of the grave, dire 
situations that we find our culture embedded in, the, the confusion about sexuality, the rebellion against moral authority, that is a real concern for the people of God that can drive them to pray a biblical prayer, a biblical prayer like this one in Habakkuk. So yes, we should prepare by proclaiming the word of God. We should prepare by praying such a biblical prayer and expecting that God's word will not return void. You may be living with an expectation that God can do things, but only very small things. And maybe you see society going down the tubes, perhaps, in your opinion, and think, well, that's just how it is. Nothing God can do, nothing I can do. Or maybe you just haven't even thought about the possibility of revival like we've seen in the past. Whatever may be the case, whatever you thought before, may God help us all now by His grace to think this way. Mm-hmm.